Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Good morning. Again, I'm really glad that you're here. If you have a Bible and it's made of paper, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. Um, If you're going to use a digital one, you can kind of scroll there and find it on your Bible app or whatever you're using this morning. Or just know that as we read scripture today, the words are going to pop on the screen. And we'll pray that the great God of this universe helps us apply these words to our everyday lives. We're in this series on Romans. And what we know that this letter to the church of believers in Rome uh, is applicable for us even today. And I'm excited about it this morning. All of the letters that Paul wrote, um, in honor of the fact that They all address the believers in the church as brothers and sisters. And in light of the fact that the Barbie movie released this week, I want to tell you a story about my sister, like my real life sister. Um, She's, you know, in her 40s like I am now, but she's two and a half years younger than I am. And we grew up in the 1900s together. And she had, if you grew up in the 1900s, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. We have not made a movie about this yet, to my knowledge, but maybe one day we will because we make a movie about everything else. Cabbage Patch Kid dolls, did y'all... Y'all know what I'm talking about? She had enough, and I don't know if this says something about my family or not. Don't judge us. She had enough Cabbage Patch dolls to line them up side by side on our entire sofa so that she could pretend that she had taken them to the My Little Pony movie in our house, right? Y'all know My Little Pony, too, because you came from the 1900s. Okay, so there she is lined up all the cabbage, and I, being the older brother in that moment and desiring to do her a solid favor by keeping her humble in life, would walk up to the television set that she was watching, turn the dial to something I liked better, because back then that's what we had to do when you wanted to change channel. It was like a knob that you turned it. Turn the dial to something that I liked better, and then I would go to the couch and find whichever Cabbage Patch kid to me in that moment looked the most vile, and I would throw it on the floor and sit right there in its spot. All on purpose. She would cry, my mom would come, I would get in trouble. When she got a little bit older, the toys changed, but the ideas did not because she would take Barbie and Ken and sometimes Skipper in the Barbie Ferrari that she had, and she would park it in the middle of the family room in front of the television. And whenever I would see that Barbie car parked there in front of that television, 
probably watching an episode of She-Ra or something, I would walk over to that television set because we had to change the dial, and I would change the dial to something that I liked better, and then I would use my G.I. Joe destroyer to bomb that car. (laughs) To which she would cry and call my mother, and I would get in trouble. Now, on the off chance that she was there with her Barbies or her Cabbage Patch Kids or her My Little Ponies or whatever, and they were, I mean, she didn't have much of an imagination because all they ever did was watch television. Okay, so there they are in front of the television set, sorry if you're listening, Lindsay, um, watching television, and I would accidentally, not on purpose, walk in front of them or do something in front of them. Again, because of our history, she would assume that I did it on purpose, call my mom, my mom would come in and I would say, but I didn't do it on purpose, and because I had done it so many times on purpose, she wouldn't believe me either, and I would still get in there. Whether I did it on purpose or not, if I got in the way of those dolls, which are fake, by the way, of watching whatever television show we were watching that day, I would get in trouble just for being in the way. Keep that image. Go to Romans chapter 14. Because we've looked at this whole book, and we're coming in for a landing next week with Romans chapter 15 and 16 combined together. You don't want to miss it. Kelly Minter from our congregation is going to be here on site teaching the last two chapters of this book, and I'm thrilled about the message that she'll bring. I'll get to be away at Rolling Hills Kids Camp next week. It's going to be a ton of fun with our fourth and fifth graders. Okay, so here we go. We're coming in at Romans chapter 14, and we know that the first four chapters of this book are an outline telling everybody and anybody who will listen that we are a dirty, rotten people, sinners conceived in it from the beginning and always struggling. And the diverse church that was made up in Rome was composed of both Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. People who had come to faith from very different angles and vantage points. It was not only composed of both Jews and Gentiles. It was also composed of slaves and free people. It was composed of men and women. It was composed of rich people and poor people. It was composed of citizens of Rome and people who had no citizenship status in Rome. It was a diverse church and it was to that group of people that Phoebe, who we learn about in Romans chapter 16, we'll get there next week, stood in front of and read the words of Paul so that they would understand how to be the church. And the first four chapters are an angle at saying, yeah, you guys who came to this whole faith in Jesus from the Jewish perspective, yep, you were sinners. You guys who came to this whole faith in Jesus from a Gentile perspective, you are sinners. We're all in the same boat. The first four chapters remind us that none of us are exempt from the consequences of our sin. And then we go into chapters five through eight, which give us an outline of how people come to faith in Jesus and what it means to accept the gift of salvation that he gives. And then nine through 11, we're back to the Jews because we have to understand, hey, well, what about the promises that happened in the Old Testament? What kind of favor is still there? And we're reminded about the sovereignty that we just sang about, that God still has a plan, that he still enacts his purpose, that he still accomplishes his promise, and there's still some other plan for both people who come to faith in Christ as Jewish brothers and sisters and those who maintain their ethnic Jewishness. Both sides of the spectrum get to come to this faith, and we don't know how all of that's going to turn out yet, but then we turn to Romans chapter 12 through 15, and it's a picture of how this diverse church, made up of all different kinds of people from all different backgrounds, from all different experiences, from all different levels of knowledge of the Old Testament, how those people are supposed to interact with one another in such a way that reminds the rest of the world how good God is. And we get to chapter 14, and it says this, "'Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters.'" 
One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And I'm sitting in this room, and I'm like, well, if anybody in this room is a vegetarian, I am, like the Bible maybe, but I'm not calling you weak because that takes discipline. I love a medium rare steak. Like, it would be so hard. Like, it would be hard to give that up. So I'm looking at, okay, but that's not what they're talking about. It's talking about the two different types of people who came to faith in Christ in the life of this church and the conflict that they're choosing to divide themselves over. And it's a picture of people who were Jewish brothers and sisters in faith who were living a very restricted diet, not indulging the things of the world and the fine foods that come across the kings, like not living that way and judging anybody else who did. And our perspective would be that if we're looking at a weak and a strong group of people in the life of the church, our automatic assumption would be that the Jews, those who had the Torah, those who had the prophecy, those who memorized the Old Testament, those through whom Jesus actually came, those would be regarded as the strong people, not so. Like they might have thought that they were strong in that moment, but Paul reminds them in his words, no, I'm actually talking about you guys being the weaker ones. You who think you're strong, you're actually the, the weaker in faith because those who came to the table trusting that it's grace and grace alone, they're the ones whose faith is the strongest. Scott McKnight read a book by him as I started this series to prepare. It's called Reading Romans Backwards, which meant I went from Romans 16 all the way to chapter 1. He explains the difference over and over and over again throughout that book and the audiences of each specific chapter as the weaker and the stronger believers. And in most cases, while we would assume that the devout Jew was the stronger of the two, they would actually regard it as the weaker because they were too dependent on their legalistic ways to apply the fullness of God's grace. It says in verse 3 that the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. The differences that we have in the life of the church, the differences that we have as brothers and sisters do not have to be automatic divisions. 16 years ago, before Susan and I came to Rolling Hills and were blessed to be able to come here for me to serve as the student pastor at our Franklin campus way back in those days, we were a movie theater church. We met in the movie theater on Sunday mornings, and it was a fantastic experience. Prior to that, I was serving the life of a church, another state far away. It, it, it didn't take us two weeks. It really didn't take us two days to realize that the church that we went to, that the church I was hired by, was on a 70-mile-per-hour collision course with division. Because you had this group of people over here and this group of people over here fighting for power and control in the life of the church, both of them convinced that they were right, and it was a dead split. And as the student pastor, I saw the writing on the wall. It wasn't a prophetic moment, but it was this idea that something is going to happen. At the end of the day, one of you two sides is going to win this war. The church is heading for a split, and one of you are going to get to stay here and do things the way that you want to do it. I don't know who, but somebody's going to win. And the other of you is going to have to pack up all of their toys and go to another church or start another church or be a part of another church where they can have things 
things the way that they want them. And the casualty in the middle is all those teenage believers in Jesus Christ who want to trust him but can't see him because you guys are standing in the way. And they're going to be the casualty. Because when this happens, it's not going to be a bunch of teenagers who walk away from this church and go find another church. It's going to be a bunch of students who walk away from Jesus. Because they can't reconcile in their minds why that Sunday school teacher, or why that great aunt, or why that deacon, or why that staff member would behave in such a way. And while both sides of the argument can grab their toys and go have church in another spot and still believe in Jesus even though they weren't acting like Jesus, we saw the students as the casualty. Because if believers are going to act like that, I don't want to be a believer. And the damage was being done. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's like, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And at the end of the day, that's what it was. It was a difference in tradition. It was a difference in perspective. It was a difference in ideas. It was a difference in mission and vision. But it should not have been a division in the life of the church. Because when we allow our differences to become divisions, they only become distractions from the gospel. And we're standing in the way of people getting to see him. We're standing in the way of people getting to acknowledge him. Skip down to verse 5. It says, one person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. He's talking about the argument in the life of the church that the Jewish believers said, hey, we should really come to worship God on the Sabbath that we have always kept and maintained holy. And the Gentile believers who didn't understand all those Sabbath laws are thinking, hey, why don't we get together and worship on Sunday? Because that's the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And they're arguing over which day they should come to church. And that difference was creating a division that was making it hard for people to see Jesus. It says, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day a special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. They give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord. And give, like, regard, each of you are coming at this with the best motivation and the best intention possible. You're doing this as if you want to honor God, but you're getting mad at the other people because they don't honor God the same way that you do. It says, for none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. We're meant to be in community with one another, a community that communicates Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. It says if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, he uses a colloquialism, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It was a common expression, Lord over the dead and the living, but it was also a powerful indication of how God was going to continue to deal with his people, that Jesus is Lord over both, he's able to judge both, he is sovereign over all. So you then, verse 10, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? He said that to both audiences. You guys over here, weak faith, Jewish brothers and sisters who are so legalistic in your obedience to God and so matter-of-fact in your pursuit of the letter of the law, why are you judging those guys that don't have it? And you, guys over here, who understand your, your freedom and your grace and the fact that you were bought with a price and that it was not based on anything that you could possibly ever do in obedience, why do you condemn 
those who are still following the letter. Why are you guys judging? Why are you guys condemning? That word condemn, incidentally, is the Greek word exotheneo, and it means to make no account, to consider somebody else worthless, to despise utterly. It says at the end of verse 10, we're all going to stand before God's judgment seat, all of us, on the same level playing field at the judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. The problem is you can't acknowledge God while you're tearing down his beloved at the same time. You can't acknowledge God and worship God and love God at the same time that you're tearing down somebody that he created. At the same time that you're allowing a division to creep up inside of you that separates you, that makes you have contempt for one another. President of the Council of Christian Colleges and University, her name is Shirley Hoogstra. I've quoted her a bunch. You'll remember the name because it's Hoogstra, and that's funny. I'm going to quote her twice today. She says, One cannot respect another and harbor a desire to overpower that person through insults, dismissal, or derogatory actions. You can't love God and hurt people at the same time. A a pastor in our community, his name is Scott Sauls, he posted this not too long ago. He's like, why you should be gentle? And I just inserted respectful and kind and patient and generous with other people. Like, why you should give people the benefit of the doubt? Why you should assume that somebody else has your best interests at heart? And why you should always approach somebody else with their common good at the heart of your motivation? Like, why in the world should we lead with gentleness as opposed to suspicion? Why in the world should we lead with kindness? Why in the world should we be the absolute first to forgive other people? And this is what he explains. I'm going to draw you a picture. Is it working? Yeah, there we go. This right here represents someone's life. And this tiny little sliver right here represents what you know about it. That's it. Because we don't know the fullness of someone's story. We don't know the fullness of their experience. We don't know the shoes that they've walked in and the miles that they've crossed and the challenges that they've faced and the hurdles that they've overcome. We only know this much because we don't see the, why shouldn't we approach with patience and kindness and gentleness rather than frustration and arrogance and pride? The convictions that we have, so many of which are rooted in a deep earnestness to, to know and to follow Christ and to, and to be his and to represent him well in the world. The convictions that we have through his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are never meant to be, it's in your notes, conditions with which somebody else is supposed to acknowledge Jesus. We're not setting up hurdles for somebody else to have to jump over. We're not setting up pathways for somebody else to have to follow in order to know Jesus the way that we know Jesus. Jesus. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. Regardless of what it is, God accepts them both. 
This is an affront to the way that we've handled denominationalism in this country and really all over the world because we allowed minor differences to be giant divisions. And I'll just go ahead and tell you that I was raised in a in a prominent southern denomination where I was indoctrinated and taught to believe that all of the other kinds of churches and all of the other kinds of denominations didn't get as much right as we did. Even to pray, that somehow pray for those in our family and those who are my friends, that someday they'll read the Bible a little bit better and come over and do things the way that we did things. Even feeling a burden as a teenage kid for kids that went to another denominational church in our community to think, oh, I'm really worried, I'm really concerned about them because of the pride and the arrogance that I felt. Oh, we're, they, they may be right, but they're not as right as we are. And it says in verse 12, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So, so, so therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one. Like, stop being worried about the account that somebody else has to settle before God and, and maybe be concerned about the account that I have in front of God. It says in verse 13, instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle. If your person likes to underline words and circle words and come back to them later because they're very important words, you can underline or circle or come back to stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister or her Barbie dolls. Like, don't stand in the way and prevent people from being able to see. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing in itself is unclean. Like, like settle all the arguments later, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Let somebody live out their convictions. If your Holy Spirit conviction tells you that you have to be a vegetarian, absolutely go and be a vegetarian. That is awesome, and I'm not going to judge you, and I'm also going to sit at the same table as you, and you can watch me eat my meat. And you're not going to judge me either. Like, we're going to sit at the same table and have the exact same kind of fellowship with one another, regardless of a deep-seated personal conviction that the two of us have. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, then you're no longer acting in love until me eating my meat prevents you from knowing and trusting that God is good. Then it's another thing. I'm not acting in love. Do not buy your eating meat, Nick Allen. Destroy someone for whom Christ died. And you can take that same application point and put it over so many of the tiny little petty differences that we have used as measuring sticks for someone's faith in Jesus Christ. It says, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Like, it's not a matter of the little things. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort, this is the most important, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The people in the church that we served, I could see the writing on the wall. The folks on this side and the folks on this side, they didn't have peace as their objective. They had winning as their objective. And I showed up to a meeting that was happening at a community center by one particular group. And I saw one person after another person after another person after another person, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't know, walk up to a microphone and air grievances and make accusations against other people in the church, including the staff that I served under. And finally, I mustered up the courage 
or I was immature enough to think that I could make a difference, and I walked up to the microphone, and I said, it really doesn't matter how right you are, and it doesn't matter what side of this argument that you fall. The way that you're going about it is only going to lead to division and only going to lead to destruction. And a man I didn't know at that moment stood up and said, son, that's how you know things are about to go real bad. <laughs> like, when a man I'd never met before looked at me and said, son, in that tone, like you knew, oh, this is not going to go well. Son, we didn't invite you to this meeting. We don't appreciate you showing up. And I quietly left. And it wasn't too long after that that the church did walk through their split. And that many students, not because we didn't faithfully try to point them in a different direction, walked away from faith in Christ because they saw believers behaving badly. Instead of pursuing peace and mutual edification, they wanted to win. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, or, or, or whatever that argument is. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. And he's addressing both audiences in this moment. Hey, listen, you're judging, you're condemning. Let's not worry about any of your personal rights and privileges and freedoms. Let's focus on what's going to point somebody else to Jesus. He said the same thing in Matthew chapter 18 when he looked at a crowd of people and says, hey, if you cause one of these little ones, those who are weak in faith, those who are new in faith, those who have just expressed faith to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown and millstones are apparently real heavy it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea there's gonna be a lot of things jesus said in the world that cause people to stumble but woe to you it's like a double woe woe to you if you're the one to whom which they come relationships matter more than rights and relationships matter more than being right Instead, make up your mind in advance not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And, and make no mistake, the way that we approach these things and the way that we grasp these things, you talk about politics being the thing, the way that one group of people thinks that, oh, you can't be Christian and vote for this person, and another group of people says, well, you can't be Christian and vote for this person. The way that they come at one another in that moment is not only preventing their opponent from seeing Christ in them, it's preventing all of the bystanders on the other side from seeing Jesus in any of them. Here's our goal. Never make a better wall than you do a window. Y'all heard that before. You make a better wall than you do a window. My dad said that. Nick, you make a better wall than you do a window. Don't stand in front of your sister and her Barbies. That's the problem. In some of our convictions and in some of our pursuits and in some of our journeys, we're making far too strong a wall for people to get over instead of windows by which they can see through the love of Jesus. Relationships matter more than rights, and the gospel matters more than anything. 
The gospel matters more than anything. It's not about eating and drinking. It's about, verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. This is a group of people that were celebrating their rights and celebrating their freedoms. And we absolutely should celebrate our rights and celebrate our freedoms. But we should not enjoy those rights and enjoy those freedoms in a manner that prevents somebody else from seeing how they can get that same freedom that's in Jesus Galatians 5:13 Paul wrote this you my brothers and sisters always calling these people brothers and sisters you're blocking my barbies no he says you were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh rather serve one another humbly in love the, the, the preview that we have this week, the connection that we have to chapter 15 that we'll start next week, is that it's all about others. Chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And you know that when Phoebe read those words to a group of people in that room, some of them were Jewish brothers and sisters in faith. Some of them were Gentile brothers and sisters in faith. Some of them should have read between the lines from chapters 1 all the way through chapter 14 to realize that they, in fact, were the weaker ones that he was mentioning. But you know they thought they were strong. (laughs) Like, you heard these words like, hey, we who are strong should really consider the journey of the weak. You know when you read those words in Scripture, you're like, well, it's probably talking about me. Like, these words, like, whenever, whenever, whenever Paul says, oh, yeah, you who are strong, okay, I hear you, Paul. I see what you're saying. I'm going to listen up. You need me to do my best to make sure the weaker ones know how to find Jesus. Shirley Hoogstra I like saying that name, Hoogstra, president of the Council of Colleges and Christian Universities. She says, like a physical bridge, you know physical bridges, you drive over them, you boat underneath them, you see them across rivers and lakes and all these places. Like a physical bridge, a relational bridge requires a strong anchor in two different places. You do not want the bridge to be solid on one side of the Cumberland and weak on the other side of the Cumberland. It better have strong anchors in two different places. And she says this, one's own faith and values This is your conviction. This is your testimony. This is what you know to be true about Jesus. We better have a strong anchor in the Lord, but also one's neighbor's best interests. Because you can't. You can't love God, worship him, tell him he's awesome, and tear down somebody that he made and create a division between you and somebody that he loves. In the Love and Respect Marriage Conferences, there's this guy named Dr. Emerson Egerich who put out this Love and Respect Marriage Conference, goes all over the country, speaks in front of crowds of thousands. He talks about in marriage this crazy cycle that we get on where one person does something really mean and they're like, well, the reason I was mean is because you were disrespectful. And the reason I was disrespectful is because you were mean. And the reason I was mean is because you were disrespectful. And the reason I was disrespectful is because you did something mean. And like this, the cycle just goes on and on and on and on. And he asks the question, when it's time to reconcile, when it's time to get off that crazy cycle of one person being mean and the other person being disrespectful, who goes first? He says, whoever is the most mature. And you know that at every single one of those marriage conferences where he sits out in front of a bunch of husbands and wives and he looks at them and says, whoever is the most mature should go first. And all the husbands in the room are going, well, 
clearly he's talking about me. He means that I'm the most mature, so I'm going to have to swallow my pride, and I'm going to have to eat my words, and I'm just going to have to be the bigger person and go the extra mile. I'll solve the problem, and I'll apologize first. And all the women in the room are looking over there. (laughs) This is so cute. My husband thinks that he's the one that's most mature. (laughs) I'll just let him think that for a minute. And then I'll go ahead and swallow my pride, eat my words, make the bigger distance and the bigger sacrifice. And like, wouldn't it be better instead of competing over the thing that makes us right, we competed to act right like Jesus? Wouldn't it be better if the pursuit of both parties on whatever opposite side of the difference it is felt more compelled to be Christ-like than they did to win. Wouldn't it be great if the believers in that early church or the believers in this church or the believers in every church, rather than efforting to be right and to win the argument, determined that they wanted to be most Christ-like, most sacrificial, most patient, most loving, most generous. Whatever you believe about these things, verse 22 Keep these things between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. We're going to live according to our convictions? Absolutely. You ought to live according to the Holy Spirit convictions that are indwelled in you by the power of God living inside of you according to your salvation. But you better love others according to grace. Recognizing that the forgiveness and the grace that we have received ought to prompt us to give 10 times more grace, 10 times more mercy, 10 times more love to anybody else. It says in Romans 15, I know we'll get to this again next week, verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You can't praise God and hate your brother at the same time. So you accept him. Faults and flaws and all in order to give adequate praise to God and in order to point other people to seeing God. When we allow divisions and differences and factions to creep up in the life of this church or any church, we're not only preventing each other from seeing an adequate picture of Jesus, we're preventing people who are weak in their faith or who have no faith from being able to see Jesus. We're standing in the way of the Barbies. And it doesn't matter if it was on purpose, because sometimes it is. Sometimes we just want to win. We want to be right. We want to be declared the victor. We want to prove our point. This couch is for people, not for dogs. Sometimes we do it on purpose. Sometimes we do it on accident, and we don't even know we're doing it. We don't even know that the thing that we've come into the room to do is actually making it harder for people to see Jesus. In in both situations, the outcome is the same. Somebody who is weak, somebody who's new, somebody who's on the outside stumbles, and we have responsibility for that. So we're going to take this chapter about what it means to be a good brother and sister in faith, and and what it means to love one another unconditionally, and what it means to support one another, what it means to pursue peace together, what it means to be strong, what it means to be mature. 
We're going to ask God to forgive us of the moments when we've done it on purpose and to, by the Holy Spirit's power, reveal to us the moments when we've done it not on purpose so that we won't do it again. Because more than anything else, we want people to see him. And regardless of the reason, we don't want to be caught standing in anybody's way of knowing that God is good and that he sent Jesus to love and to redeem us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place. God, we pray this morning that you would do exactly what we know you came to do and exactly what we know you are capable of doing. It's how this whole relationship with you started in the first place. Would you forgive us when we fail? We know that we so often do. Sometimes we do it on purpose because we want things our way. We want to go our way. We want to be right in our way. And we are determined in our sin to do things our way. Forget about the casualties. So God, would you forgive us for desiring to be right more than we are righteous? For thinking that our rights matter more than relationships? and for being the stumbling block that causes other people to fall away. And then God, by the power of your Spirit, would you reveal to us those things that are inside of us that we don't even know are there, that we're unintentionally saying or doing or believing that prevent other people from knowing how good you are. We tell you today that we love you, and we ask for you to search us and reveal to us any way inside of us that's preventing other people from seeing you. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.